We're rolling. Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Called Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's guest is novelist Donnie Hunt. Donnie hails from Texas and has worked for various newspapers and radio stations while contributing to sports websites. During the past six years, he has written and published five novels. His first, Blessed Poison, was released in 2016. In 2017, he released The Crest for Aranwa, An Angel of Death. In 2020, he released his fourth novel, Already Fallen, a sequel to his first, Blessed Poison. And in 2022, Donnie's latest novel, Reckless Passions, a sequel to Already Fallen and Blessed Poison, was unleashed upon the world. But when he, when he isn't writing novels, Donnie Hunt also indulges in his other passion, being a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan. Tonight marks a special occasion for Dallas Cowboys fans. This is the 30th anniversary of Dallas winning Super Bowl 28 against the Buffalo Bills. It was Dallas's first repeat Super Bowl victory in their franchise history. And tonight, Donnie and I will pay tribute to that great team. Donnie, welcome back, man. Welcome back. It's great to have you again. I like to start off by asking you, when the 1993 season began, were you and other fellow Cowboys fans fully expecting a repeat Super Bowl championship? How confident were you all? Uh, I was pretty confident. You know, back then, coming out of the, the 80s, generally, if you had a, a good young core good, and a good coach, you were set up for probably a decade or so of success, and we had that. We had a great core, we had a great coach, and we had championship experience having won the previous year. So everything seemed set for a long run. So I was pretty confident. Of course, I didn't understand, one, what the salary cap was going to do in a couple of years, and two, I underestimated Jerry Jones and his uh, aptitude for stupidity. But, yeah, going into the season, I was pretty confident. Now, at the, at, during the preseason, did Dallas make any type of significant roster changes, or did they draft anyone notable or sign any notable free agents that you recall? Um, there weren't any huge, huge changes. I know that um, they drafted Kevin Williams in the second round, who was a big kick returner. As a matter of fact, he opened the Super Bowl with a long kick return out past midfield. So he had uh, a bit of an impact, but for the most part, the, the core performers carried over from the previous year. Now, if I recall correctly, didn't Emmitt Smith hold out for a time, and that's why he didn't even play the first two games of the regular season. Is that correct? Do I recall correctly? That, you, you are absolutely correct, yeah. So Emmett wanted to be paid like the best running back in the league, and Jerry, being unusually tight, didn't want to pay him. So yeah, Emmett held out the first two games, which Dallas lost, including a rematch against Buffalo and Texas Stadium. And um, starting 0-2, and at that time, no team having started 0-2 had ever won a Super Bowl, um, Apparently, the story goes that after that loss to Buffalo, Charles Haley threw his helmet in, through the wall and narrowly missed Jerry Jones's head, and he decided maybe I better get Emmett in here. So they got the deal done, and Emmett was back for week three. But you know, I've often wondered if that was the motivation why he wound up, Jerry later wound up giving Ezekiel Elliott that idiotic contract he gave him, maybe thinking about that Emmett Smith holdout. But you are absolutely correct, and it showed right off the bat just how important Emmett was to that team. Yeah, I mean, they came back and they went on a super hot streak there. I mean, uh, I forget how many games they won consecutively.
unfortunately, but it was it was a real good super hot streak. Put them right back into the race. It was. They uh, did not lose again until right before Thanksgiving. They wound up losing to Atlanta the game before Thanksgiving. And then, as I know, we're going to have to talk about the uh, infamous Miami game on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, other, and those were the only two, only four games they lost all year long. What is your memory of the infamous Leon Lett mishap in that <laughs> in that Thanksgiving game against the Miami Dolphins? Right. So yeah, I was I was actually watching that with my family over at my grandmother's house, and of course it's odd because it's snowing and. Irving, that's not something you see a lot. So we were we were glued to the TV, and it was a harder game than we thought it was going to be. But we blocked that field goal there at the end, and everybody in the house is celebrating. And then swoop, here comes Leon and kicking the ball, and and havoc breaks out. And we were we were not very happy with Leon at that point. And of course, he had had the famous gap in the Super Bowl the year before. That's kind of what he's remembered for, but it's kind of a shame because he went on to be a very solid player for many years. But, yeah, that's kind of his uh, trademark of those two goofy plays he had. Were they the only goofy plays, or was this something that Leon had a bad habit of doing from on occasion? I don't recall another one after that. I think maybe he learned his lesson with that one because after that, I don't recall him having any major goof-ups. Okay, but the thing is, after those two losses, again, Dallas, they, 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 they suck it up and they go on another hot streak there. I mean, now, question, at the end, it didn't, it wasn't in a pretty tight race. I mean, they had to literally clinch it on the last regular season game, last regular season game, if I recall. They were deadlocked with the Giants, and they went into the Meadowlands that last Sunday. Um, that if they won... They won the division, and they had home field advantage. If they lost, they wound up as wild cards. So it was a huge game, and of course, that's one of the most famous games of that season, and also the game that really made Emmett Smith's career, I think, in a lot of ways, is that famous game of that season clincher against the Giants in the Meadowlands. Isn't if I recall correctly, didn't he got hurt in that game? Didn't he? shoulder in the first half and came back and wound up I think he caught something like 10 balls and carried for 168 yards and and I'll tell you something I, uh, I've i got an injury and I separate my shoulder all the time so I know what kind of pain that is Yeah. and uh, I was watching an interview with him to uh, kind of bone up for this and he was talking about how on every play you could hear it cracking yeah. I know exactly what that sounds like and Jeez. my god when it happens to me I lock up and I'm completely worthless till it pops back in that dude went out there and played a half and overtime of football in the cold getting thrown down on that hard astroturf they had back then yeah. and I mean that dude was just nails yeah, and the fact is, he still had the playoffs too. He had to run the whole the, the full right. gamut of the playoffs too with that shoulder. I mean, that's that's talk about the quality of courage. <laughs> and that's why it was so important to win that game because otherwise they would have had to play that very next week. But at least he got one week to recuperate, having gotten that home field advantage in the bye. Okay, now we go into the playoffs. What w- what was the basic collective confidence level of the Dallas fans when they went into that playoff run? Honestly, a little shaky because they had had they hadn't been as dominant as they had been the year before, and there had been a lot of injury problems. Troy had been hurt and missed some time. Obviously, Emmett wasn't at a hundred percent, 
and you know San Francisco's hanging out there, and you knew you couldn't couldn't take anything for granted with San Francisco. So there was confidence, but it wasn't cockiness because we knew that there were some challenges ahead. And of course, they wound up having to start with Green Bay and Brett Favre, and that was a, a team that you could tell was ascending. So uh, there was some confidence, but you couldn't be too cocky with it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they were able to. Be, I mean, they beat Green Bay twenty-seven seventeen. That was a pretty gritty game. But then you took on the Niners, you know, in the NFC Conference Championship game. But you know, I mean, it was that was like a thirty-eight twenty-one victory. I mean, but but still, it was still a tough battle, wasn't it? Um, well, it didn't start out that way. Dallas started to, to motorboat them early. They got out to a big lead, but then um, Troy suffered a serious concussion and had to leave the game and San Francisco started to crawl their way back into it a little bit and off the bench comes Bernie Kosar who had been cut by Cleveland earlier in the year and Jimmy one thing Jimmy Johnson learned is he learned the value of having a good backup quarterback so Bernie comes in and kind of helps keep Dallas afloat and they wind up winning it fairly easy but there for a little bit it got a little shaky and of course Troy with that concussion it obviously affected him in the Super Bowl because he wasn't anywhere near as sharp as he had been the year before. And this is before now mandatory concussion protocols there. I mean, if that existed right. back then, it would have been interesting how that would have affected the Cowboys, you know, either mm-hmm. in that game or in the Super Bowl, considering. Yeah, he, he probably would not have been able to play in the Super Bowl because I know he had to spend the night in the hospital, and to this day he doesn't remember that game at all. He has no recollection of it whatsoever. So, yeah, under today's rules, he probably would not have been cleared to play. What are your memories of the buildup towards Super Bowl Twenty Eight? Again, they're facing Buffalo again. Even though you, you the Dallas blew, annihilated Buffalo the year before, what were the basically the Dallas fans and the pundits' feelings about the game going up to it? Confident. I know me personally, being a little bit of a pessimist, I was sitting there going, you know, what are the odds? And you know, Murphy's rule, eventually somebody's going to crack, something's going to happen. Buffalo's got to win one of these, right? The yeah. law of averages. So I was a little worried. I knew that we were the better team. Um, but given Troy's injury, given the fact that Buffalo was a good team, and, you know, you knew that they were going to be playing hard because they didn't want to lose four straight. And there wasn't the off week between the conference championships and the Super Bowl. And traditionally, when they did away with that off week, the Super Bowl wound up being a pretty competitive game. Yeah. So there were some there were some cause for concern, but I wasn't overly worried about it. Now, what are your memories of the first quarter? Because when you when you look at the stats, it was a pretty much a seesaw battle. Both teams are moving the ball and they're scoring points. What was your sense of it looking back at it? Honestly, you know, I talked about Kevin Williams returns the opening kickoff pass midfield. Dallas starts marching immediately and bogs down and has to kick field goal. Buffalo goes right back down. Um, Dallas winds up getting a turnover. James Washington, who would come into play later, and they move again but have to settle for another field goal. So you kind of felt like Dallas wasn't quite putting it together. They were maybe one or two plays away from really taking control, and they just couldn't quite shake Buffalo, which would wind up being kind of the story of the game for a while. Now, in the second quarter, you know, Dallas is scoreless, and then Buffalo scores 10 points. Do you recall Dallas experiencing any problems, you know, a failure to execute either offensively or defensively during that second quarter? They were were having issues... um, Converting third downs, 
I know that that touchdown drive that Buffalo went on, I think it was something like a 17-play drive or something, so they had a hard time getting off the field on that drive. Uh, Jim, they were keeping uh, the passes short to keep the Dallas pass rush at bay. Thurman Thomas was having a game for himself. So it was a little bit of frustration. And then right before halftime, when it looked like Dallas was going to go down and uh, possibly take the lead, Troy just ter- makes a terrible, terrible throw and winds up getting picked off by Nate Odoms and uh, allows Buffalo to go down and kick a field goal and extend the lead to seven going into the locker room. And it, you, you could see that Dallas was the better team in a lot of ways, but they just weren't quite making the plays they needed to. Yeah. And that led to some consternation at halftime because Buffalo, you know, by that point, the last two Super Bowls were, were pretty much already over. Um, and now here we are trailing by seven to Buffalo, and it was starting to get a little worrisome. And then to add insult to injury, Buffalo gets the ball at the very start of the second half here, and you talk and grounds for concern, and then. We come to the most memorable play of that Super Bowl. What are your memories of Thurman Thomas's fumble and James Washington's recovery and TD score? How do you remember it? <laughs> it seems to me like, um, uh, honestly, I felt like James Washington ran over half that football field trying to get to the end zone. But it was, it was pandemonium in my house, I know, because that ball popped loose and started bouncing around and... Um, it kind of felt like Dallas was going to need something like that to kind of turn the momentum. And here's James Washington just weaving his way through the defense. Looked like looked like Barry Sanders or something trying to run through that Bills defense on his way to the end zone. It was a magical mystery to her, to be sure. But, uh, yeah, it was thrilling. It was kind of the first really exciting thing that Dallas had done that game because the first half was kind of dull. So, yeah, it, was, it was, uh, definitely gave the game a kick up. Donnie, were, did back then were you, were you watching? Did you used to watch Saturday Night Live back then at, at around that time period? Were you watching SNL? Oh, yes. yes, I did. I remember this vividly. This this happened like a week or so after the Super Bowl game, around the same time. This was when uh, John Wayne Bobbitt had a slashing incident where his wife you know, mm-hmm. cut him, and then you had the Nancy right. Kerrigan clubbing I- incident. And SNL did a skit. I think it was like the, the weekend news thing. And the guy, I forget who it was, said, this is an incident of slashing. And they show the photograph of John Wayne Bobbitt. And this is, an, uh, uh, this is what clubbing looks like. And you show the Nancy Kerrigan thing. And then he said, and this is an example of choking. And there's Thurman Thomas with his head in his hands. And oh, the groans from the crowd. <laughs> twice in that game and of course you know Thurman Thomas was a great player and and he certainly deserves his due but those last three Super Bowls that he played in he did not do well you know the, uh, against Washington he lost his helmet and couldn't start the game and he had some bad play it was kind of a non-factor the year before and the two big fumbles uh, that directly accounted for 10 Dallas points so yeah Thurman uh, Thurman didn't didn't enjoy her Super Bowl experiences very much. Yeah. You know, and don't laugh, when I was working on my fourth book, uh, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, I interviewed Buffalo's Don Beebe, and we talked about Thurman's fumble, and he said when that happened, he said literally it sucked the air right out of Buffalo's balloon. I mean, it's like, oh, no, not again. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, the score is now tied. Did how I mean? Did you when you're at watching it? Did you feel the tide has finally turned? I mean, did you really get that sense now? Even though it's a tie score, did you feel that the momentum was now switching? 
Yeah, I, I remember feeling that very definitely that, that we had on now. We were back even. Um, they were starting to show signs of choking like they had in the past, and I really felt that if Dallas could hold them on their next possession and go down and score and take the lead that we had them. And it turned out that's exactly what happened. So do you feel when Washington made that fumble with Cromer, you think that was the clincher, or do you think when Emmett scored that touchdown, you know, that was the real clincher? Washington fumble return was the clincher because it was just such a sudden change of momentum and it was right after coming out of halftime so you knew that they were up having gone into that locker room with the lead and how that comes so quickly I, I remember watching them walk off the field and you could just kind of see on the players faces how dejected they were and I really felt like that was the moment that the game completely turned. When you look at the second half stats it looked like Rat Emmett Smith was just ramming it right down their throats I mean was that was that how you remember it during in that second half? Yeah, Troy wasn't, because Troy wasn't Troy, he wasn't hitting all the throws, and so apparently North Turner, Turner and Jimmy Johnson just said, you know what, let's get behind the great wall of Dallas and hitch up to Emmett and let's, let him carry us, because you know, on their next possession, they go the length of the field in eight plays, and seven of them are Emmett runs, and they just crammed it down their throat, and from that point on, I know a couple of Bills players said that Dallas did not wear them down, but um, I beg to differ on that. I think Dallas definitely wore him down in the second half. Now, do you feel Emmett Smith deserved his MVP award, or do you think James Washington? Because not only did he get that fumble recovery and score, he also got the interception that set up another Dallas touchdown. Do you think Washington should have gotten? What's your feeling about that? I, I felt James Washington should have gotten. I mean, it was easy to be, you know, oftentimes it winds up being the star player is the quarterback or the running back or whatever. But James Washington, yeah, he had a... An interception, he had a fumble return for a touchdown, he forced a fumble, he had 11 tackles, he was responsible for the score that swung the game. I felt Washington should have gotten it. Um, I mean, I can certainly see why they did Emmett, because you know they saddled him up and rode him to the finish line in the second half, but I thought that Washington's plays were a little bit more impactful. Uh, kind of felt like... Well, Emmett's, the battering ram job they did with Emmett was just, um, you know, finally putting them out of their misery. Now, the end result, Dallas wins 30-13, to and it is the only time in Dallas Cowboys history they won back-to-back Super Bowl titles there. Tell, when, when, you were, when you and your family were reveling in the afterglow and your friends, I mean, winning it the second time, did it feel better than the first time? What, what were your feelings and emotions, you know, in, in the aftermath? more fun. Um, this one kind of felt a little nerve-wracking just because it wasn't as easy. Um, and just the whole season hadn't been quite as easy. And some of that's because now that you know they can do it, your expectations are ramped up. You expect them to be as dominant as they were, and, and they weren't. So there was a little bit of a sense of relief, but at the same time, you know, like I said, I, coming of age in the 80s and watching all these teams I couldn't stand, like San Francisco and Washington, <laughs> win multiple titles and be a lead every year. There was a sense of, ah, it's, it's our turn now. And, and I was looking forward to, you know, we're going to do this three, four, five more times. You know, I was, I was thinking we had a decade in front of us. So relief, yeah, but also a little bit of cockiness, thinking that, you know, this, I could get used to this. Little did I know. And then weeks later, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big was the shock and surprise when Jimmy Johnson left as head coach? Uh, 
at the time, um, 120. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, it was one of those things. I mean, they had been talking in the press that they had been sniping back and forth for, for a while. And so you knew that their relationship wasn't great. But to have a coach win back-to-back Super Bowls and then be gone like that, you just, you just don't expect that, especially not a guy who was as fairly young as Jimmy was and seemed to have plenty of time in front of him. And, of course, the way everything fell apart with Jerry running his mouth and everything. It was just, uh, I was in complete shock when that happened. And then, of course, he doubles down by hiring probably the worst coach he could have possibly hired to replace him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was, shock isn't even a good word. Furious. Uh, <laughs> just look up the thesaurus for anything that goes as angry, you know, beyond all reason. That's pretty much how I felt. And I still get angry about it now, even though I realize looking back that Jimmy probably wasn't going to be there much longer anyway because he was a nomad and I think he was getting bored. But um, at the time, especially, I was, I was beyond words. <laughs> I was wondering because when you know, doing my research, I always got the impression, you know, no, he didn't say it out loud. I wonder if Jimmy was experiencing some type of burnout because, you know, with, with his years in Dallas, he was not just head coach, he was also co GM with Jerry. I mean, with enormous influence on the personnel things. I wonder if it just, it was just the, 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 the emotional effort. It probably just took so much out of him. Maybe it just, even if he had stayed, it probably maybe it would have been like Dick Vermeer or John Mann, just you know, burning out. You think? Probably. You know, he never touched anywhere longer than five years in his life. He was he, that was about what his shelf life was before he needed the next challenge. And listen, looking back, you can kind of see it um, and understand it a little bit more. And I definitely think. Not only was he the head coach and the GM and he was responsible for doing all this, but he had to build it from the ground up. Yeah. You know, from the one in fifty. It wasn't like he was coming in and taking over a team that was seven and nine and had some talent all around. He built that he tore it down and built it back up from scratch. He's now losing coaches because his coaching staff's getting picked off three head coaches. He's watching his players leave. So yeah, I'm sure that there was a ton of stress and he he definitely needed a break. And so he, he probably would have left anyway. I would have liked for him to have at least tried for the three feet. Yeah. I don't know if he, you know, he may have been gone anyway, one way or another, but just the way everything unfolded still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And when you look at the relationships he had with his players, it was very much a very personal relationship. I mean, he really. They got into each other's skulls and their souls and all that. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why they just absolutely outperformed everyone during those two glorious seasons. Don't don't you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. They respected him. Um, they knew that there was only he would let them get away with a little bit, but they knew that there were lines. Um, he held them to a great deal of uh, accountability. Uh, he was also a master motivator, and he knew how to push the right buttons at the right time. You know, um, I remember before the NFC Championship game, people were talking about, well, San Francisco may get them this year, you know. And remember, he calls up the radio station on his way to dinner and and says on the air, we will win the game and you can put it in like three-inch headline or whatever. Because <laughs> he knew his team needed that little bit of confidence. And I remember thinking, like, what are you doing? Because these are the Niners. You're talking about Young and Rice and all that. You're sitting there giving a Joe Namath speech and saying we're going to win it and you can put it in the headlines. But 
that's exactly what they needed to kind of give them the push. And he was a master of that. And it's one of the things that, one of the reasons I grew to respect him, because I couldn't stand him when they first brought him over. Um, I didn't like him when he was at Miami. And, of course, the way he, he got the job, I didn't like him. But he won me over by things like that. And I've always respected him. He had an eye for talent. He knew how to motivate. He knew how to lead. And all of those things, that's a huge vacuum that was created when he wasn't there. And we said, the guy that comes in next had pretty much none of that. <laughs> And the thing is, Jimmy Johnson did what even Tom Landry could not do, win back-to-back titles. I mean, yep. that, that's it, you know, at, even that, you know, he, he exceeded Coach Landry in that little way. You know, not in a little way, but in an enormous way, you know. Right. You know, one of the few. Yeah, you know, in a very real way, um, I can see, I would still put Landry one, but I could see if you wanted to make the argument that Jimmy may have been better, you know, I wouldn't. I can see you making that argument. And I think, I think I in one. Way, but I can see you making your argument. <laughs> yeah. But I'll put you this way, though. I think in one way, Johnson was a little bit better than Landry was in the human equation. Yeah. Dealing with the players as, yeah, as, you know, as individuals and people. You know, Blander was a genius with the X's and O's, but in dealing with the players, you know, the emotions, the, heart, the mind and the heart, I, yeah, there probably was some problems there, but Jimmy knew how to tap into the heart the way I see it, you know, in that sense. Well, even a lot of Landry's former players would say he wasn't the, the easiest guy to approach or the warmest guy, especially. He was a very business-like person. He took and he kept his emotions out of it. See, I can see they were they were miles apart in that aspect and the way they dealt with the yeah. players specifically. Uh, there are some of the guys that Jimmy had on that team that Landry probably would not have tolerated in the league. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> oh, I know. Donnie, uh, I just want to thank you so much. You know, uh, we just we pay tribute to this great team, and uh, I wish you and your family the best uh, to stay warm in the winter time. Okay. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. You said it's a joy being on here. Let me not ever need me again. Sir. Well, don't laugh. Two years from now, we're going to talk about Super Bowl Thirty. We're going to pay tribute to that Dallas team. Okay. Yeah, we're going to talk about a blind squirrel finding an acorn without. <laughs> you got it. Okay. You take care. God bless you all. Thank you. Have a great night, Matthew. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I'll be interviewing author Candace Haven. Thank you and good night.